This is a headgum podcast. Boo. Wow. Wait, we already did this one. I think we did this one. We already. did do a scarier one. We did well, you know, if we wanted to keep track of all the intros that we'd ever done so that we could reference them later on podcasts so we didn't repeat ourselves, we would we could create a website for that. And if we were gonna create a website, there's no better place to do it than Squarespace. Squarespace helps you make your memory tool into a new website. It helps you showcase your work, blog or publish content, sell products and services of all kinds. And so much more. They let you do all of this by giving you beautiful templates. These templates, they're beautiful. And they're created by world-class designers. They've got powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online. Uh, they've got analytics that help you grow in real time, built-in search engine optimization, and free and secure hosting that you don't ever need to patch or upgrade because somebody else handles it for you, you dummy. Yep, that's it. That's how it works. Okay, it was how you get it? If you had anything to add. I was well. You <laughs> called me a dummy, and then you want me to buy something. I was calling something. the listeners dummies. Calling the listeners. Where dummies. should these dummies go to get this sweet dummy All deal? You dummies who don't want to patch or upgrade anything because you're too much of a dummy <laughs> can go to squarespace.com/slash/overdue for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save ten percent off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.com/slash/overdue. And use the offer code OVERDUE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, Squarespace. Let's do it. That's the only phantom song I know. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. You guys do the organ one. <laughs> it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew, but I'm spooky this month. Is that your spooky name? <laughs> Andrew, but Andrew, spooky. But spooky. <laughs> Uh, Interest yeah. rates are at an all-time low. Oh it's isn't that a it's good horrifying. thing? It's yeah, horrifying. It depends on who you are. Yeah, I guess, of course. But you know, like if you have a higher interest rate, that's it's pretty scary to know that they're at an all-time low right now. Yes, yes. But if you're looking for like a thirty-year mortgage, maybe it's like Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Get that refinance. Yeah. What's this? What's this? A mortgage in the air. What's it? anyway? <laughs> uh, so we are here in our what third week of Spooktober. Boy, has it been three weeks already? <laughs> it's been three years, my friend. Uh, I feel like I haven't been spooked enough. Well, get yeah. ready. I and mean, I guess we did find some. Res- we did <laughs> commune with the ghost of Rasputin last week. So. Yeah, of like a guy killed us for trying to kill him in the past. Yeah. That was scary. Craig, tell them about our podcast and what you did. Oh, great. Whoa, well, Show them what you did. <laughs> Look what you made me do. I <laughs> read Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. And the way that our show works is one of us reads a book we've never read before. And we tell the other person about it. Presumably, they've at least read about the book so that it makes an interesting conversation. We'll see if Andrew did that or decided to spook me with something else this week. 
I think Can he I did. Spook you with my lack of preparation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and for those of you at home, you may know of a little musical called Phantom of the Opera. Uh, I did not read that text. I read the original novel by Gaston LaRue uh, that was originally published in like 1909 and 1910, serially, before Serial did it, okay? Yeah, it was published serially starting in 1910. The original podcast, Um, Phantom of the Opera. The Andrew Lloyd Webber musical premiered in London in 1986, and then there was also a, a silent film version in uh, 1925 which i think is the main reason why americans knew this well yeah. enough to make a musical out of it in the first well place. a british man made the musical well but yeah but it's like that's that's what it's known for here in the you know in the states across the pond i will say. i i would be i'll get yelled at by my sister if i don't mention the 1938 i believe nelson eddy musical film that is very different but apparently well regarded by fans of nelson eddy um sure <laughs> you know uh i read Headheads. The, so there's a there's, this book is in the public domain and you can find the older i don't know the name of the translator but like a closer a more contemporaneous translation of it um that's a little clunky from what i've read a lot of people this, have read it silent um, movies in the public domain too like if you ooh. if you go to the wikipedia page so let's let you watch the whole thing. time, time to make some cool. youtubes let's yeah. go yeah um and that version, I think, has been truncated. Many versions of this of have been truncated over the years. I read the Oxford Classics version that was translated by David Coward, I think, in the early 20-teens. And he is a French lit professor uh, at Leeds and has done all sorts of work on, like, Dumas and other French authors. So... Yeah, I know there is... There is, I, I can't speak to all the various editions. There's one chapter in particular that appeared in the serialized version back in, in 1910, but has not been part of any like official novel or anything since. The only thing I know about it is that it's called, it, the name translates to The Magic Envelope. Okay, so. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, so here's, here's what we have from the translator. Um, Entitled L'Enveloppe Magique, it shows... Yeah, I wasn't going to try to pronounce um, that, but I'm glad you did. Madame Geary being interviewed by the directors of the opera. Relevant parts of the excise text are incorporated in the final version of an expanded chapter 17. Um, And it's a real rollicking story about a missing envelope that really grinds the narrative energy to a halt. What a magic envelope it is. Uh, so yeah, I mean, what we should talk about Larue. We should first. talk about him. What do you got? Gaston Larue was born in 1868, died in 1927. He was a French journalist and novelist, uh, best known for Phantom, and then this other uh, locked room mystery book called The Mystery of the Yellow Room, which was published in 1907. Larue, I don't know whether to be mad about him or impressed by him because he only had to become a reporter to pay the bills after he gambled away his inheritance. Yeah. Did you <laughs> so like on the one on the one hand, like way to overcome adversity and make a contribution to the culture, but on the other hand, eat the rich, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I got these these hard 
impulses to balance. Did you see the part in his biography where he had gotten married and like moved his family to Nice so that he could be closer to the casinos? <laughs> and then he had to <laughs> he had to keep writing more books so that he would have money to gamble and feed his family. I, I know that he died in Nice, which I guess that that casts a whole another shadow on that. Now, yeah, maybe to know that this was the city of his greatest gambling sure <laughs> it's not very that's not very nice at all no it is not um so from 1894 to 1906 he was a traveling correspondent um who went around the world tr- covering world events for the french including but not limited to the 1905 russian revolution so that seems cool yeah um, and then in the early 1900s, he started writing novels and, yeah, Phantom published serially starting in 1910. Um, according to the Britannica entry on it, it, quote, received only moderate sales and somewhat poor reviews at the time. Um, but it found wider popular success in 1925 when it was adapted to that um, to that American silent film starring Lon Chaney Sr., who is a. He's known for his uh, makeup skills. Like, so this is like the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. And he did all of his own makeup in all these like horror films, including like the most prominent ones are Hunchback of Notre Dame. And then this, he Hmm. was Quasimodo and then he was the Phantom. Um, Yeah. And he was known as the man of a thousand faces. Some of the faces turns out are pretty racist. Oh, I bet. We don't have to talk about it more than that, but uh, yeah. (laughs) Cool. And Lon Chaney Sr. is also not to be confused with Lon Chaney Jr., his son, who also appeared in a ton. He he was the Wolfman. He was in a ton of B movie oh, wow, yeah. stuff, okay, um, including at least one that would that they did on uh, Mystery Science. So, yeah, a couple of a couple of guys. These guys. My favorite <laughs> anecdote that I read about the movie was that uh, Lon Chaney Sr. and the director. Uh, did not get along like at all. Mm, mm. So here's here's a, according to director of photography Charles Van Enger, Cheney and the rest of the cast and crew had strained relations with director Rupert Julian. Eventually, the star and director stopped talking, so Van Enger served as a go-between. He would report Julian's directions to Cheney, who responded, "Tell him to go to hell." Oh, whoa! As Van Enger remembered, Lon did whatever he wanted. <laughs> so... That's awesome. Yeah. I think when you when you are the star and the makeup artist who makes the entire picture hang together, you kind of can do whatever you want. Yeah. You know. Um so yeah, that that I don't know. I just thought that was funny. That struck me pretty funny. It's- um I also know that LaRue based bits of this story on on real things including some things he insisted were real that <laughs> maybe weren't so real, but sure. the like one a tangible real thing is that the cavern underneath the opera house that this the story is based in the Palais Garnier Garn, Gar, Garnier Garnier yeah. can you help me um apparently there is like an, a cavern underneath that thing and they still use it in modern times to train firefighters to learn how to swim in the dark yes they had to like get it was the basement was built like under the water table so they had to pump out a crap ton of water to make all that work yeah it's it's mm-hmm. interesting down there um yeah. there was also a real incident where in the 1890s a chandelier did fall and like kill a concierge excuse me chandelier <laughs> thank you excuse me <laughs> um and the uh 
the character of Christine Daae may or may not have been based on a real-life soprano named Christine Nielsen. Um, Unclear whether or not our Phantom is based on anyone real. I've found myself on too many, like, spooky ghost tales websites that I don't believe at all. <laughs> Was there anything fun that, well, just that, like, that you happen to record? Just that maybe they're one of the original architects of the opera was named Eric and, what like, asked to live among the foundations of the structure. And so, like, maybe the Phantom is real and LaRue is just, like, you know, collating information uh, to what tell is us. The, the fun... So in the whole, uh, there's a paragraph in the in the Wikipedia page about history behind the novel, and I don't mean to cite Wikipedia, except that the academic paper that this is apparently attributed to, I cannot access. Okay, sure. Because it's uh, it's on Oxford Music Online, and I do not have an active description, uh, subscription. But um, the sentence on Wikipedia says the en- the event that was the infamous chandelier crash also rang to be true. <laughs> Which, Wikipedia, what does that mean? Like, you can't just say that something sounds like it could have been true. That's funny. Like, that's not that's not how that's not how recounting events works. They haven't footnoted everything. I can't access the paper that the footnote is based it's on. The world's to be best true. encyclopedia. Gee, just give them a few dollars and they'll fix it. Um, Jimmy Wales, some, fix, fix, the, fix this page, Jimmy Wales. Some context from Coward's intro in the edition, which is pretty good. He talks about how LaRue was, you know, he became famous for this detective that he created in the mystery of the Yellow Room. Um, he also wrote a bunch of books in the Sherry BB series, which is about a wrongfully imprisoned person trying to clear their name. Um, and he did a lot of serialized writing in newspapers, which Coward attributes to him not having to be like pigeonholed into a specific genre or form, even as he is like playing with gothic horror in this story. Um, but then the shift, uh, Coward cites like rising literacy rates in the early 20th century to a, a increase in interest in the novel um, and published like collected works, and so. LaRue is cited as one of the last like super successful serial authors who was getting their like novels published, their stories like written this way um, because the industry, at least in France, was moving away from it. Um, he did have a flair for the theatrical with his books. This is a direct quote. LaRue was hmm, enthusiastic about the new medium and its power to enhance his success. He had always taken a keen interest in commercializing his work. His second novel, The Double Life of Te- Teofrost Longuet, had started life as a publicity stunt. The text included clues which astute readers could solve and thus claim the seven treasures buried in seven locations of Paris. To launch the seven of clubs, playing cards were slipped surreptitiously into pockets where they were found by amazed citizens, including, it was said, the president of France. It was said. It was said. <laughs> said by whom? Probably LaRue. This sounds like the plot is like a Crash Bandicoot game. I love it so <laughs> like, much. What are you talking about? I love it so much. Um, <laughs> so we will probably talk about the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical a little bit as we go. It's worth I noting. I feel like to the extent this is known, like if, if you're going to know a version of this, you know that one or you're like aware of that one. I am not, I'm aware it exists. I have as as a theater person it is a big blank spot on my cultural radar. 
Um, once, so I, once a, a quarantine ends, once the pandemic's over, you should put it. You should put up Phantom. Yeah, I'll do at, it at the theater. Yeah, just at the theater. At. Yes, yeah, we will definitely Phantom. do Phantom. Do Phantom. Okay, Craig, do Phantom challenge. Sure, twenty one. Um, so I do want to get into the book, and then maybe we can talk about differences from the musical along the way, if that makes sense, Andrew. I think like sure. that maybe may be the way to go. Yeah, um, I'm not like intimately familiar, so I did. I would. Mm, I talked about this on Twitter a little bit. Yeah, in high school, in the early 2000s, I was in my high school show choir, and I was in my high school show choir for the same reason that any straight high school male is in a show choir, which is because I had a crush on a girl. Yeah, who was in it, <laughs> and I didn't end up going anywhere. But I was the phantom. In a truncated version of the Phantom of the Opera that we did. I love it so much. And we did do this performance at a local theater as part of a, a, a thing where like a lot of high schools participated. Yeah, like aren't the and kids was, so talented? Yeah, and it was and it was filmed. And my understanding is that you could see it on public access TV in Marion, Ohio, like pretty regularly yes. for a long time. You were a cultural <laughs> landmark, I am, a touchstone. I am, I'm, I am mentioning it because I have looked very specifically and I cannot find a copy of it anywhere. <laughs> so. so you're just like, it's, you're using the secret right now. Someone's going to find how, it now. No, I'm saying I feel pretty confident that nobody's going to find it, and that's why I'm revealing that it exists out there somewhere. (laughs) I know exactly who I would talk to to figure out if I could locate a copy of it, but I'm not going to because there's just there's not there's not enough money on the planet earth well it is good that you uh are the phantom of the opera so if we have any questions about the it's musical true, it's true, it's true i am um as we go My you hideous, can answer that's them. why i wear the mask all the time that's and true. we haven't talked about this on air either but i do wear a mask all the time <laughs> to hide my disfigured visage it's true I, d- I never wanted to mention it, but now that we're here, I'm glad that it's a safe space where you can reveal it's just that. Go- it's gauche to bring it up, really. Yeah. Is that like a ghost? <laughs> <laughs> what happens when a ghost does something that's gauche? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't have any follow-ups People say bit. boo. God, tell me more about this book. Okay, so this book is structured sort of like a mystery detective thing for a good long period of time. There is an unnamed narrator, I believe in some editions is signed GL as if it's just Gaston LaRue, but that's not like made clear. Um, And the like overall vibe is of a dude working through a bunch of collected research on this very real thing, the Phantom of the Opera. Um, it's got like a lot of gothic horror tropes to it, a lot of uh, scary imagery, a lot of maybe it's monsters. The overall vibe is that it's like um, you might see some mysterious stuff and the the language that LaRue uses is a little subjective. So like you might think it's a demon, but it's actually just someone thinking it's a demon. <laughs> like okay. if you get if you know the difference. Um, and also it's like, it's not an epistolary novel, but it is, it does have a lot of mixed media in it, 
where Ooh. he will like he's like oh well i collected this information by speaking to these people and then this is actually this passage is from a book that one of the opera directors wrote and this like dialogue is from an interview with a police chief and this these five chapters are in the first person because someone gave me their papers to read and i'm just putting them here for you to read um, so it's it's like a really fascinating document. It allows him to change perspective in a way that like keeps up with the conceit of I am Gaston Larue telling you about the true existence of this ghost. Uh huh. Um, and then also it's a romance novel, sort of. I don't buy it. I think it's like I think it's doing <laughs> other things. And I, I I think my pre-recording question to you was like. How did this become this canonical love story? Because it's not like there aren't people in love in the book, but that's not what's really going on, I don't think. Yeah, like I I don't know what to tell you about why it's become a canonized love story, except that there are a lot of lonely men out there who it's think It's a lonely that, man story, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe it resonates with people on that level. Like, I, I am a lonely man, but if the object of my affection were to really get to know me <laughs> beneath the mask that yes. hides my disfigured visage, True. they would they would love me because I'm good underneath the mask yes. and the visage. And I, and I think the, the quality of Andrew Lloyd Webber's music does touch a lot of people. Um I found a New York Times and in good and bad ways. I found a a New York Times review from the '88 Broadway premiere that said, um, "As you've no doubt heard, Phantom is Mr. Lloyd Webber's first sustained effort at writing an old-fashioned romance between people instead of cats or trains." <laughs> I the word that I like the most in that sentence is sustained. Uh huh. Because it implies that Andrew Lloyd Webber has tried a couple of times to write love stories between people, and he gets to a certain point, and he's like, oh, this is too hard. Just put cats Just in put it. Just put cats in it. Just make it about trains. I don't know. Apparently, the story is that Webber found like a copy of the novel while he was like casting around for a love story to write and like used it. Anyway, the, the review is like, this will be a big hit, but I don't think it's like the best thing, but it's going to be a big, a big thing. Um, wow, that sounds you. You can yeah. describe a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals that way. I think. Yeah. Um, and so the book opens with an amazing dedication page to my brother Joe, who, though he is not at all ghostly, is nevertheless like Eric, an angel of music. Affectionately, Gaston Larue. <laughs> it's like what? Gaston, are you okay? <laughs> How do your brothers feel about you gambling away your inheritance? Uh-huh. Like, did they get their own part of the inheritance? Uh, the foreword is titled, In Which the Author of This Strange Tale Tells the Reader How He Came to Be Absolutely Convinced That There Truly Was a Phantom of the Opera. Okay. So, real story. Yes. 
totally real. Believe me, it's real. First paragraph. There truly was a phantom of the opera. He was not, as was long thought, a figment of the imagination of artists, the product of the superstitious minds of theater management, or some fanciful will-o'-the-wisp created by the empty heads of the young ladies of the corps de ballet, their mothers, assorted wow. box attendants, clock cloakroom girls, and the stage doorkeeper. Oh, yes, he existed, all right. A creature of flesh and blood, though he strove hard to give the impression that he was a genuine phantom, in other words, a ghost. And he goes on to tell you that he's going to tell you the story about how Christine got abducted, how the Viscount, do we say Viscount, Vicomte, it's not Viceroy, it's like Viscount. It's not Viscount? I always say Viscount. The Viscount? Like a discount? Yeah, like it rhymes with discount, Viscount. Okay. Um, And his older brother is dead. And it all happened by the side of a lake under an opera. And he's like, listen, I talked to a bunch of people. I got a bunch of testimonies together. This is definitely real. And you're going to hear about it. So the main characters that we're going to learn about are our Phantom, of course, who is maybe a ghost. Vacant. Vacant. Viacom, new media. Viscount. 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 Okay, great. Is what... Man, this I have never run into this creepy Google pronunciation. I love it. Before. Perfect. Anyway, go ahead. Yes. Um, our fandom of the opera, uh, who is maybe a ghost. We'll find out. Uh, Christine Daae, who is a soprano, um, who is not the, the like diva of the opera, but becomes very talented. Um, the Viscount Raoul de Chagny. Raoul, um, who is a childhood friend of Christine's. There's a character just called the Persian. Um, who <laughs> never gets another name, and he shows up about you know halfway through the book, takes over the last third of the book. He's like a detective from Persia who's been tracking the Phantom and knows the Phantom. It's dope. It's great. Okay, okay. I, but I thought, I I guess my understanding of the story was that he haunted the theater that was the site of his disfiguration. So I don't know why somebody oh, from the falling around. Well, okay. th- that is not the case in the book. So let's okay. let's so bust there's, that myth. There's that and then I also want to say I would like to read a version of the I I would like to see how this would be different if you made her an alto instead of a soprano. I think it would be a much I, I can't tell you how it would be different, but I think it would be a much different Yes, story. singers <laughs> pop off in our mentions. Let us know how it would be different. <laughs> <laughs> um other characters we meet Raul's brother Philippe who is the count um and the like there's a whole thing in this book towards the end where Raul and Christine are like they want to be together but because she's just an opera singer and is like I guess of a low class background uh uh Philippe does not approve of his brother's match and so like some of the uncertainty around what really happened is maybe the it was a brother's quarrel over this woman that is actually what led to all the bad stuff and LaRue is here to tell you that no there was a phantom involved um (laughs) we have the guys who run the opera house um Montcharme and Richard uh they are taking over the opera house from old management who are definitely leaving because there is a phantom and they have signed a contract with him, but they don't really want to tell anybody about it. <laughs> I feel like in modern times, this would have to be on, on a disclosure form. Like the, they do. I mean, like we, we've talked, we've talked about 
the New Orleans houses where they have like haunted and not haunted, haunted yes. on the on the for sale sign. I feel like that you would have to have this if you're trying to sell your theater. Like, are there phantoms? I don't know. Has it has an inspector well, been through? Has a, have you had a Ghostbuster come in? And sweep for phantoms. The the old directors do at least disclose the document that they have signed with the phantom to the new guys. And the new guys are like, this is bogus. This is a prank, right? Whatever. They have a contract with the phantom? Yes. Why? Because they have to pay him 20, 20 francs, 20,000 francs every month. And they have to leave his box seats open and no one's allowed to sit there. And then as the story goes on, he has very specific programming and casting suggestions. That if they don't Wait. follow, he will wreak havoc on the opera house, Andrew. They know. they, But they've never met him. <sighs> this, uh, uh-huh. I feel like, what if he just... And this is... <laughs> what if they just shot him with a gun? Like, sometimes... Okay. Yeah. Like, with all the, all the Marvel movies. Like, see, my wife is watching all the Marvel movies <laughs> in order. And... A lot of them, it seems like their superpowers are worse than just having a good gun. Yeah, sure. So this, so it feels like, why are they? Okay, let me tell you. Really call the they should call the Phantoms bluff, is what I'm saying. Like he has he has all this power over them, and I don't understand why. Okay, or how? Okay, this is good. Now, so we're gonna spend the next you know half hour or so together taking the piss out of this book. I had a lot of fun with it. And I'm going to mm-hmm. continue to have fun with it on this here podcast, which involves why didn't they shoot the phantom? <laughs> why didn't um, they shoot the phantom with a gun is my first question. So, and we're going to get to that, actually. where There is a part where Raul tries to shoot the phantom with a gun, and it remains an open question whether or not the phantom was there at all, or whether or not he just shot a cat. Um so like oh, that, does, someone does attempt to shoot the Phantom with a gun at some point in this book. Um, the opening of the book is a lot of like hustle and bustle of the people at the opera house. We are, uh, it's a gala celebrating the retirement of the old guys who definitely know that there's a Phantom, or at least they definitely know that there is someone taking 20,000 francs from them every month. Um, and... A couple of things happen on this on this gala celebration night, which are sort of spooky. A stagehand dies. He just he is found hanging um, underneath the stage. Like the stage has like you know it's like a ten story building or something. And this stagehand is found hanging from a noose. But he uh, when they go back when someone like finds him, it's like oh my god, this guy's dead. And he runs back to tell someone they come back and the noose is gone. Where'd the okay. noose go? Where, where did it go? It's, I feel like maybe it's spookier with the noose there. I don't know. You don't find out until like the end of the book where the noose was. It's the Punjab. Okay. It's the Punjab noose, which is apparently a thing that that the Phantom of the Opera is very skilled at using. The Persian goes on about this at length. <laughs> Do you have any okay. questions? So sure. No, um, I mean, let me give you a good description of the Phantom as most people in the opera house who believe that there might be a Phantom think of him. This is from okay. the guy that they find hanging. Um, he's tremendously thin and his coat hangs on a bag of bones. His eyes are so deep set you can't hardly make out the pupils which never move. In fact, all you can see is two great big black holes like sockets in a dead man's skull. The skin is stretched over the bones as tight as a drum. It's not white but a sickly sort of yeller. He got no nose to speak of, you can hardly see it on, and the fact that there's no nose to see is the most horrible sight. 
three or four brown strandy wisps across his forehead and behind his ears is all he's got in the way of hair. Now, you may be thinking, why did I do a Cockney thing there? And that is a thing that David Coward does for a few lower class, (laughs) working class characters because he's British and he just needs you to know that class is a thing that exists. Yeah, that's the only way he knows how to express class is different accents. Correct. So we are to understand that the Phantom's... Like his disfigurement is not a mask that is over his grim visage. He does. But it's his actual face. Later in the book, and certainly when he has abducted Christine and is spending time with her, he wears a mask. And she recounts to Raul at some point that uh, she thought he was going to die because she had seen his actual face. He was so embarrassed or scared or sad about it or something. Um, and when he's moving around in the shadows, it does not appear as if he is always wearing the mask necessarily. People might be seeing the fact that he does not have a nose. Uh, it's unclear what he is suffering from, uh, some sort of illness or some, it is, it is strong. I mean, I, I did, I did hear that he had a medical condition that meant he couldn't wear a mask. I hate that. Why did you say that? And you, have, <laughs> not, and you have to let him shop at the Acme. I am not here to politicize the Phantom <laughs> of the Opera any more than the book is already weird about class stuff. <laughs> um, so they find this guy dead, and they do not cancel the gala. Um, and Christine, our you can't let you can't let cancel culture win. It's true. They let Christine sing a big song from the opera Faust uh, because our diva Carlotta is indisposed for reasons we don't know about. And people lose their minds. She slaps, Andrew. She's the best singer. It's like she is, like heaven has come into her voice so much so that she almost like collapses after she's done singing. This is how we get introduced to Philippe and Raul. And Raul's like, yo, I know that girl from when I was a kid. And he like he's like, she fainted and is sick and she needs me. And now... I, I spent the first third of this book really not liking Raul because I had no evidence that they actually loved each other or knew each other, and I thought that he was just creeping on Christine real bad. I was I mean, waiting. Two things, two things can be true. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> like, he runs to her dressing room. Everyone assumes that they are, like, together because of the way that he's acting. She wakes up and is like, oh, wow, Raul's here. And his thing, he says, I'm the little boy who ran into the sea to get your scarf. And she's like, yeah, you could leave because I passed out and that's weird. (laughs) You find out later in the story that like they did know each other as kids. That is how they met when she was traveling with her like traveling musician father and they were playing music and she was singing and her scarf flew into the ocean or whatever. And that they do know each other. But at this point in the story, I was like, is Raul a creepo? Because... She kicks him out, and he's like, well, I'm just going to wait outside her dressing room. <laughs> yeah, listen. seems like a creepo so far, Craig. And he hears her talking to a voice who is like, wow, you sang really good, and <laughs> you have to love me. And he, we haven't spent any time with Christine, and all of a sudden she has Raul wanting her, and she might have a supernatural lover or whatever. It's very disconcerting to say the least okay um so far this seems to be like 
different information about the whole opera setup than you were expecting about the Phantom in particular. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. Is does he show up like pretty early in the musical? Like do you meet him like pretty early? I mean, so again, I'm just working off of the the production that I did in high school, Great, which is perfect. mostly the main song. <laughs> so from my perspective, the Phantom is just kind of there from the beginning talking about how he's a phantom and he's there inside your mind. Yeah. <clears throat> sure. And he wants to be in love with this woman. That makes sense. I guess it was very phantom centric, the the version of it that I did. It is my understanding that the musical's pretty phantom centric. This book spends a long time with you not knowing whether or not the phantom is a person or a ghoul or a dude who's good just, at illusions. Just an idea. Yes. Um we get like the first of three or four comic interludes. That I guess if you were getting this story week to week or day by day, you I can't tell if people probably loved them or hated them because it was like get let me get back to the Phantom, but instead I have to read this comic short story about the house manager who takes care of the Phantom's empty ticket booth and is like, yeah, I you know no one could see this Phantom in the box, but they'd all heard him. She often heard she'd often heard him, and they could take her word for it because she never told fibs. Like that's this is Madame Geary, who is like the Phantom's best friend and delivers money to him by leaving it in his box in the audience. And then like it's gone later. Is this are these his francs or is this separate from these are his 20,000 francs? Yes. Okay. Um, And the parts where she's telling this to the opera impresarios, um, it's very funny or it's, it's, I found it amusing and it's supposed to read as funny where she's like, instead of actually just being straight with her story, she's also singing all the opera songs as they crop up in her story. And it's like, okay. they're like, get on with it, lady. It's, it's funny. Anyway, um, <laughs> I liked it. Whatever. Uh, Christine, Chris, Christine, Christine and Raul, their story moves forward. She writes him a letter and is like, Hey, I'm going to go to my dad's grave implying that he should follow her, which he does. And Mm. she tells him about the angel of music, which is a story that her dad told her a bunch. And now she's basically in a relationship with a disembodied voice that she understands to be the angel of music, who has been (laughs) speaking to her in her dressing room, teaching her to sing good for the last like three months. I mean, this is extremely relatable. (laughs) This this, who hasn't this happened to? It's true. Uh, And while she's in, while they're in the graveyard together, the Phantom did actually also follow them there, as he promised, and played on her dead dad's fiddle, which seems really awful. Um, He like pulled it out of the ground and like played a cool song on it for her and scared Raúl. Turkey in a straw. Probably. It's probably Turkey in the Straw. It's probably Turkey in the Straw. (laughs) That's the only fiddle song I know. Um, We get to this big moment that is the chandelier moment, which is, I believe, it it happens a little earlier in the book than it certainly does in the musical. We spend some time with the opera diva Carlotta, who's been scared off of one performance by, like, threatening letters, like, where the Phantom is literally just writing her mail being like, you're going to be sick today, okay? Just be sick or something bad will happen. I left you all the clues. Yes. And she's like, not today, 
because she is worried about Christine like taking her job. So she goes in there. She even invites a bunch of her fans to show up like in on mass to like cheer for her because she thinks that Christine's going to bring other people to like boo her or something. <laughs> and it backfires because they start it's you ever seen a like a uh you've probably seen some Broadway shows Andrew I think you've done that where you go and there's like a celebrity in the show and when they walk on stage everybody claps just because they're famous and it like You mean breaks. like Sir Patrick Stewart? Yes. Or Sir Ian McKellen? Yeah. Yeah. And it like kind yeah. of breaks the play and is bad when that happens. It's like but but it's I think everyone also recognizes the inevitability of it yeah. and so they build that expect expectation into the play. I think you, you can, you can tell how the actor feels about it by how prominently they list the thing that everybody knows them from in, in their, their bio. Yeah. In their bio, <laughs> in the playbill. Yes. Uh, Patrick Stewart was all, yes, of course he was, he was the voice in X-Men legends Two, the video game. That's what you know. Yeah. Him from, yeah. Course. And he was also in, uh, in the movie Dune. <laughs> Um, so she does this, and of course it's very embarrassing because all of her fans are now way too loud. Uh, she builds up to her big solo, and instead of a cool, beautiful note that she sings, um, a toad comes out of her throat. But And like, the way that the story's written, it goes several paragraphs where it is describing a literal toad coming out of her mouth, and then LaRue goes... Of course we speak here of toads only in a metaphorical sense. There was nothing to see, <laughs> but by God, there was plenty to hear. By God. And that is the, like, that is a hallmark of the style of this book, is to, like, describe a thing as if it is literally occurring, and then, uh, like, two paragraphs later, be like, this is actually really just what everybody was feeling, but I needed you to know that it was like there was a toad coming out of her face. How are you supposed, I mean... It it is interesting that this book starts with a an insistence that everything everything contained within these pages is really totally real. Correct. Believe me, it's real. And then for the book then to lie to you for the sake of metaphor for like the entire rest of the time really sets up a juxtaposition that I don't I don't know what to do with that. It's really playful. It's playing with <laughs> I guess it's like trying to give you how the characters don't know what is real or not because like the especially in, until some of the people meet the phantom face to face they really don't know what he is or what he isn't and so everyone who is encountering some of the effects of the phantom have kind of almost like a you know you know like maybe they're losing it a little bit or reality is breaking or so like christine is has been getting voice lessons from a voice in her wall for months. Like, yeah, what? I mean, if they're if the price is right, <laughs> it's true. Voice lessons can be expensive, uh, and the voice doesn't just come out of her wall. It can come out of anywhere in the theater, in the opera house, um, because while this Toad Woman is singing, um, the directors who are watching from the phantom's box which they, which they shouldn't be sitting in according to the contract that they signed yeah it's the phantom's box come on they hear a voice going her singing could bring down the chandelier 
and then the chandelier does fall down. And isn't it ironic, Andrew? It falls into the crowd. It hurts people, and it kills a woman who was at the uh, opera for the very first time that one of the opera managers had invited, like, on a lark. And when the plane went down, he thought, well, isn't this nice? Is that is that irony? It is a little irony in the Alanis Morissette sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that is when Eric, our Phantom of the Opera first kidnaps her um after the uh the the chandelier falls down there's a whole big masked ball with raul being confused about the about where she's been and why she's been spending time with this voice there's lots of crying one of our twitter followers (laughs) said that they couldn't get past how many times eric uh, not eric raul cried in this book there's uh-huh. a lot of tears in this book. There's uh, at one point is from Tunde. I hope you keep track of how many times Raul cries in the course of the story. Back when I read it, I gave up around the sixth occasion. Um, there's an occasion where he wept hot tears. He had adolescent tears, tears streaming down his cheeks. The real heavy tears of a thwarted boy. Uh, also, the Phantom cries a lot. The Christine cries a lot. There's just a lot of crying and tears in this book. Um, but the the next big thing is that Christine has been spending time with the Phantom. She divulges this information to Raul. They're like sort of in a relationship now, her and Raul, but not really because she's promised herself to the Phantom. And it's very, again, like, I this is the first half of the book where I'm like, are they supposed to be in love or not? Because she is being very cagey about her actual feelings for Raul, which uh-huh. you later learn is because she's trying to protect him. Um, the Phantom saw her recognize Raul in the crowd. She got excited, and he was like, well, if you're going to love a man, uh, I'm going to take the magic voice away and not teach you anymore. <laughs> and she's like, well, Raul would never be with me because of my upbringing and my background, so I guess I'll just lie to the voice and tell him that he's my brother or something, and that'll be fine. And the Phantom's like, no, that's a lie. I'm going to kidnap you. Um okay. And she comes face to face with him for the first time. And my favorite line in the book, Andrew, he says to her, it's true, Christine. I am not an angel, nor a genie, nor a ghost. I am Eric. (laughs) Striking fear into the hearts of opera goers. It's Eric, the phantom. It's like, and he's got, she, she describes his bedroom. He has the notes from DS Ire painted on his wall. He sleeps in a literal coffin. Like he's got a hot topic room before hot topic existed. Yes. Yeah, he's got a whole room. Uh, he's got a whole wall of Funko pops and like a, a giant crow poster. Like he <laughs> Eric rules. He's making his own opera called Don Juan triumphant. Actually, he doesn't rule because he's kidnapped this woman that he's forcing. Yeah. To love no, him. It sounds kind of pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he does, she does get kidnapped again by him. Um, and then she needs to get saved. And so like the last third of the book, um, after the whole magic envelope interlude, which I guess I could tell why it got cut <laughs> because it's actually, it's incredibly confusing. There's multiple ghostly pickpockets happening. Um, none of it actually makes sense. I don't recommend that chapter. Um, but the Persian arrives as a character who's basically just Yay. been hanging out in the opera house 
the whole time. He tracked the Phantom there from the Middle East slash Northern Africa. Uh, he knows that the Phantom is a is the king of traps, he calls him, and is a skilled ventriloquist and magician who can throw his voice anywhere he wants, which is a big reveal later in the book. So that's why he's been able to like maintain this ghostly persona where he can talk to anyone from anywhere in the building is he'll like he'll go up to a pipe and like throw his voice through the pipe and then you think there's a ghost right okay um and some of this is revealed in a really awkward epilogue at the end where the persian is like yeah Yeah, that's where epilogues usually go (laughs) well sure thank you (laughs) where the the persian is like yeah eric was a little boy and he was so hideously disfigured at birth that he ran away from his family because his family didn't love him. And then he like joined a band of Romani people who taught him like being a magician and a ventriloquist. And then he got hired in Persia as an architect designing sick trick palaces that had secret passages and torture rooms in them. And it became a really talented torturer. But then the people who asked him to do the torturing were mad at him, so he ran away. And all of this is divulged after the Persian and Raul get trapped in a torture room at Eric's under the Opera Lake house where he is holding Christine. Is this part of the musical? (laughs) Listen, man, I don't, I, again, am not familiar with any parts really, but the part that introduces the concept of there being a phantom of the opera and where he's in love with the woman. Sure. But I was going to, we talked a little bit about real estate listings before. And do you think that if a, like if you were selling like your, your palatial estate or your, your castle or your maison and it has secret rooms, do you have to, do you disclose the secret rooms to increase the listing price of the house or do you leave them either for your own use or for the new owners to figure out themselves. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Ooh, here's what I would do. If I were Eric King of Traps, I Uh would in the deed that I sign over to them, I would leave clues in the deed. And then in the house, I would put like a decoder for those clues that would okay. lead them to the secret passages. I'm not going to mm-hmm. put it in the legal document that they use to buy the house like explicitly because I don't want the bank to know. I yeah, you don't want the bank to know, but again, I feel like having a bunch of secret passages and and cool rooms might be a selling like if point. A, if you have a whole nother bedroom in your house that's secret and you don't tell anybody about it, that's going to really ding your value, I think. What would be worse? buying a house from someone who had felt the need to install secret passages or selling your house to someone who's very excited about there being hidden passages probably the second one because who's that person what's their I don't deal because like, i don't know i don't want to know what they're going to do with them yeah it's not great i know that my pur- my purposes are only wholesome <laughs> but i don't know about other people <laughs> yeah these are these are very wholesome secret torture rooms that i've built please don't ask any questions um, the torture room's weird. The tor- I was not prepared for a mirrored torture room where Eric trials, tries to boil alive Raoul and the Persian 
by, I guess, pointing a bunch of stage lights in the mirror room that they're trapped in to, like, heat it up until they die. Okay. They finally get out through a hatch in the floor, uh, and they learn that underneath them are a bunch of barrels of gunpowder. A thing I definitely know is not in the musical. <laughs> and I, that would be expensive, I think. Yes. To have that kind of pyrotechnics on stage. Uh, the Phantom has given Christine a choice. Be his like living wife. Like be his wife. Now that is specified so that she does so that she agrees to be with him and doesn't like, you know, take her own life to no longer be with him. I I mean, sure. Yes. But it's awful. To even have to even have to specify living wife. Oh no. And the way he says wife multiple times is awful in this book. It's just really creepy. And it's like all he wanted to do was be a wife guy in the worst way possible. But he <laughs> gives her an ultimatum that is like, choose me uh, and we'll be together. And maybe I'll let these people go. If you don't choose me, uh, I'm going to bury everyone in this opera house. And so there is a like a little switch. There's like a scorpion and a grasshopper. If she turns the scorpion switch, she'll be married to him. And if she turns the grasshopper switch to not be with him, then everything blows up. Um, she agrees to be with him. The men almost drown. And then in their recovery, uh, we later learn that the phantom was so moved by her willingness to be with him, um, and like understand him and his pain, uh, that he sets Raul and the Persian free. Uh, it did cost Raul's brother his life. I skipped over that part, but what, um, whatever, no big deal. No. Collateral damage. <laughs> and uh, there's like a whole, like, the Persian has the Persian has to agree to tell the newspaper that the Phantom is dead. And there's a headline that just says, Eric is dead, which if it, no one knows who Eric is, so. You can't just say Eric. That's not, mm, okay. Um, and there's like a scene where she agrees to, like, bury him in the opera house when he dies or, or something like that. Uh, but maybe he's not dead. Who knows? Because you, you never saw him die. Um so did LaRue ever write Family Opera 2? Well, he was just leaving the door open to do it. I, I believe the the sequel musical Love Never Dies is based on a 1999 novel about the phantom who moves to Coney Island and opens an opera house and invites uh Christine and Raul and their son Gustav to join him. This is real. So I mean, I know that is real. Having died in 1927, I'm going to bet that LaRue did not have anything to do with this particular <laughs> no. interpretation of his he, character. He did not. I don't believe, no. Um, but the, I guess the like the book ends with a bunch of open questions. So it doesn't tell you where uh, Raul and Christine fled to. They got away. Um the the public narrative, of course, is that Raul and his brother got into a fight that led to his brother's death and him having to run away because the Phantom is not part of the police record of what happened. Um, and the the writer of this tale is the one doing the like you know true crime podcast on what really happened with the Phantom. Essentially, okay. is what this mm-hmm. novel is. Um. Yeah, so then it ends with this thing that, like, is, I guess, a 
a through line of the latter part of the book after you know that the phantom's not an actual ghost and yes it's still scary and people are still being hurt but like you're like oh he's a real person um this is from the persian poor unhappy eric should we feel sorry for him should we damn him all he ever wanted was to be like everyone else but he was just too ugly he was forced to choose between hiding his genius or wasting it performing tricks whereas with an ordinary face he might have been as noble a man who ever lived he had a heart big enough to hold the whole world, but in the end, he had to make do with a hole in the ground. Surely the Phantom of the Opera deserves all our sympathy. Surely. Surely, <laughs> surely he does. He kidnapped a woman and killed multiple people and, like, trapped people in his torture prison. What the F? Yeah, but, like, but... But the world was, was mean to him. But, yeah, everybody was mean to him. Yeah. Yeah, so what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it is interesting to read this with, you know, it being followed by a century of like what makes a person a bad person stories that like that kind of fit this mold. There's, mm-hmm. you know, the, your prestige dramas about, you know, men who break bad and whatnot. Um Sure, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember the name of that one, but... Mr. Chips, maybe? I don't remember. Um, mm-hmm. But it also do, it feels of a piece with your Draculas, your Frankensteins, your, like, here are some characters who have a relationship that's thrown out of whack by a supernatural-ish antagonist. Like, it feels of a piece with those kind of 19th century tales. Um, and yeah, I just don't, I found the spooky parts worked. I found the fun of it worked as kind of like a roller coastery action movie, I guess. Um, the comic bits with the managers are very odd taken in as part of the would, sum total. I want to know what's up with these guys. I want to know what's up with these guys who... I don't know. They must have bought a, their very first theater and then found that there was a phantom in there. But all of their, or maybe they inherited the contract from the people who they owned the did. They did. Them? Yes, they did. Oh boy. And so, and most of their stories are like, we don't think this is a real phantom. We're gonna fire all the people who says there's a phantom. And then none of this. I mean, it really still to me feels like somebody needs to just shoot this guy with a gun. Yeah, it's true. Some well. They do bring guns with them and get in a fight with him, but they don't end up shooting him. Um, then why? Okay. But they did have the guns in case they needed to. Sure, fine. They would have shot him if they hadn't gotten caught in the flood when he used the water of the lake under the opera house to get rid of all his gunpowder. You know how it is. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a flood underneath your opera house. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I just, the, for me, the love triangle is not really a thing. There's a guy who kidnaps a woman because he's lonely and sad, and there's a relationship between two people who knew them, who knew each other when they were kids, and, like, we find out that they do love each other, like, when it's dramatically convenient, but, like, they don't fall in love over the course of the story. You know what I mean? Like, that, to me, is, like, part of a romance story, like. Right, like, it's, it is a... I don't think a love triangle works particularly when it is thoroughly asymmetric. Yes. Like I can't 
I can't just insert myself into your marriage and call it a without, love with, without any buy-in from either of you two and call it a love triangle. No, like I don't think that I don't think it works that way. <laughs> um so Lindsay on Twitter said, I, I read a translation of this book multiple times before ever seeing the musical, was surprised by how different The Phantom comes across when I saw it. Less horror, way more sap. Uh, Juliana said, the book is much scarier than the adaptations. The musical makes The Phantom romantic. Instead of focusing on how he groomed and manipulated a literal child by pretending to be an angel sent by her dead father... And the recent movie is Hot Take, Not That Bad. Um, I did look up that thing about the grooming. Uh, there's a translation of this that makes it sound like Christine is 15, but that's actually of like a, a weird translation of trying to just say that she has a like young, naive attitude. I believe in the text she's supposed to be 20. It's okay. still gross and bad. Um, so I just... But it's not gross in that specific, specific way. Yeah. And a lot of people in our mentions were defending Carlotta's opinions of workplace safety with the chandelier. Um, I think those are mostly <laughs> references to the musical because once that chandelier falls in the book, we never really hear from her again. So not a big deal with Carlotta there. Um, this one was kind of spooky, though. The descriptions of the bowels of the opera house are definitely evoking a like Dante's Inferno-esque nightmare town um well nobody wants to buy a building and find out that there are subterranean layers under it that they didn't know about like that's pretty spooky and extortion extortion's terrifying extortion also with the two thousand twenty thousand francs yeah. from the i mean i guess this is just a long-standing business arrangement <laughs> that somebody entered into for some reason yep mm-hmm. how often do they meet to renegotiate the terms of that contract. Like I'm just thinking about it in the in the context of the of the union. I think it's a very one sided negotiation. Time. Sure. He he issues terms and they abide. Huh. Because at one point when they are kind of refusing to do what he wants, um, and they've been selling tickets to his box against his wishes, he sends them a strongly worded letter that's like, listen, here's how it's going to go down. Here's the role that you're going to give Christine. If you don't do this stuff, uh, the performance will be cursed. And lo and behold, it is. <laughs> Just imagining the posting from the Phantom on Reddit, like, oh, my, my opera house owners have unionized. Please help me. <laughs> I would also love uh, a bunch of, you know, am I the a-hole posts from the Phantom while he's down there. (laughs) I kidnapped a woman and she doesn't like me. Am I the a-hole? Yeah. I've been charging these guys 20,000 francs a month, which I don't know how much that is, but it sounds like a lot to use their opera house and to like reserve seats and really just to, this feels like season tickets to me. Like it feels like the same thing, but a I T a Ada Ada of the opera phantom of the Ada, something like that. Anyway, Andrew, thanks for letting me tell you about this ghost story. You're welcome. I think, do you want to as someone just before we head out as someone who has played the phantom, do you have any tips for any budding phantoms out there who, uh, want to portray this hero of romantic fiction big hand motion perfect (laughs) so you can see him in the back of the house yeah i love it great Mm -hmm. 
if you want to share with us your thoughts about Phantom of the Opera, the book, or the musical, send us an email at OverduePod. Nope, OverduePod at gmail.com. Or got it, Facebook, got it in one. Facebook and Twitter at OverduePod. Thanks to Roslyn, Yael, Mel, Wilson, Juliana, Beach, Jennifer, Janina, Natalie, Laney, Amanda, Sabina, and more, including the folks I mentioned earlier for reaching out this week. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? OverduePodcast.com is our internet website. We have Apple, Google, RSS links up there. We are on Spotify. We are on Stitcher. We are anywhere where you can get podcasts. Rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. It makes us feel good, and it helps people find the show. Uh, we also have a link to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash OverduePod. Donate, and you can get some episodes early, including our current long read project, Genie Babies, where we read uh, the Arabian Nights a few nights at a time. It's been strange. Yeah, so it's a far, weird one, but it's been fun. Um, next week, I am going to be reading uh, "Demon Theory" by Stephen Graham Jones, and then our bonus episode for this month is "Lovecraft Country" by Matt Ruff. Thanks again to Nick Larandis who composed our theme song. That's it, Andrew. Take us out. That's of it. Here. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening, and until we spooky next week. Try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.